0: Escape velocity. Escape velocity.
1: Rain. Rain.
0: Doesn't sound very good. It's very now. inappropriate. Yes, too soon. Hi, welcome to episode twenty-six of Escape Velocity Radio. I'm one of your hosts, Chris, and I'm here with the very strangely voiced
2: Derek. Hi, it's Derek. I have my sexy voice on.
0: Yeah, oh, still inappropriate. Uh, too soon. Some of you wondering why we are openly disgusted by this uh, Radiohead track. You must be from another country because if you live in Canada, everybody knows what that is. Not because everybody here likes fucking Radiohead, except for Derek, but because that song is synonymous with a... Was was, synonymous. With a wildly popular national radio program called Q. Yeah. Hosted by... On
2: CBC, our national broadcaster.
0: The state broadcaster hosted by a guy named Gian Gameshi, who, as was put by... Journalist Melissa Martin served as an avatar for Canadian progressive values and hopes and dreams, didn't he, yeah. Derek?
2: Yeah, he was like this liberal minded, well cultured, well spoken host. It was an interview show. Yeah. Maybe people outside of Canada would be familiar with his infamous Billy Bob Thornton yeah. interview, where Billy Bob Thornton went off the fucking rails.
0: But something happened
2: just a few weeks ago in late October. Yeah, a bombshell was dropped. bombshell was dropped. Uh, Canadian journalist Jesse Brown, partnering with the Toronto Star, started reporting on uh, the fact that Gian Gameshi apparently has a 20-plus year history of violently sexually assaulting women. Yes. And at this point, there are accusations from, I think, 14 different people. Many of them anonymous, some of them coming forward uh, with their names. There was a criminal investigation. He
0: is MIA. He was fired from CBC yeah. summarily without any real indication of why. They just severed ties with him so they could no longer continue the relationship with Gian Gimeshi after some information came to light to them, which was very mysterious at the time for yeah. those of us who weren't in the know. Gimeshi then came out on the offensive with a preemptive strike against his accusers. against his accusers by posting a Facebook post, basically setting the tone for a national debate that would ensue, and in the process, essentially throwing the victims of his abuse under the bus.
2: Yeah, and casting himself as the victim. So in the weeks that have followed, it seems like it ignited a discussion, some debate around many things related to sexual assault, to consent, to Due 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 process, yeah, misogyny, Yeah, and essentially rape culture uh, in Canada, which was, I think, demonstrated by a lot of the initial reaction to Mm -hmm. Gomeshi's post and to the accusations. And it seems to have laid a lot of things bare. And I think it it also has ignited a discussion around why people stay silent and don't act uh, in the face of sort of open secrets, Uh, because as we will find out, this serial abuse was in some circles very much an open secret with gian gameshi so to help us sort through all of this to figure it out to find out what the fuck is going on we decided to invite local writer journalist melissa martin she writes for the Winnipeg free press and she wrote a piece on her blog not long after the story broke called do you know about gian uh, recounting her experiences being introduced to this open secret of gian gameshi being a violent sexual predator with women And so Melissa came in to talk to us about this.
3: So welcome. Welcome to the basement. Thank you. Maybe you could help us start talking about this. Mm -hmm. When this all broke a week ago Sunday or whatever, where this all started coming out that Jean was taking a leave and then that he was fired and then he posted this Facebook statement. Obviously, right away, your mind is going to, yeah, I know exactly what's going on. Mm You know, which led you to write the piece. So, what walk us through all that?
1: Yeah. Well, I would even start the day he announced that he was taking a leave, taking some much-needed personal time. I don't follow him on Twitter, but when that kind of got retweeted into my feed, I I kind of thought, hmm. You know, but I knew his his dad had just died, and you know, and he's a person in, in a very high-pressure industry. And I thought, yeah, we'll we'll see what happens. Uh, and then on Sunday, um, you know, this this the news came out. CBC announced that we have cut ties. Or information has come to light that we're no longer able to continue our association. However, they worded it, and I looked on Twitter as as you do. And, you know, my feed was blowing up with people who were stunned, you know, how could this happen? Why is this happening? I can't believe CBC let, you know, this man is their talent, their shining light, their beacon. And, you know, and my heart is just sinking. And and I don't think that was an uncommon experience Mm. in uh, for a lot of people. I think there was a lot of people who were sitting there. And when we read that there was CBC statement, my first thought was, here we go. Like, finally, you know, because he'd been waiting for it for so long. And I think for those of us who had seen him in action and those of us who had heard things and those of us who had um, who were aware that he had, at the very least, boundary issues, at the very most uh, issues with, with sexual propriety with women, we'd been waiting for it. And, you know, I tweeted something along the lines of, you know, I kind of clipped that bit of the CBC statement and tweeted it with, hey, you know, I see a lot of people are feeling pretty sad about this, but respectfully, you may want to hold off a little bit until the facts come in. And then he posts this Facebook thing. And it I honestly it was one of the most disturbing it was one of the most disturbing opening salvos I think I have ever seen in terms of just the willingness to destroy women's reputations as a a preemptive strike was Mm -hmm. stunning to me. And, you know, he goes on the offensive, he produces all these very salacious details about his own uh, sexual proclivities. And then he throws in there, you know, this is a campaign that's been orchestrated by a jilted ex-girlfriend who has been colluding with a freelance writer who we now know as jesse brown and several other women to destroy my reputation he says those words and it was it it was it was almost jaw-dropping to me how just how incredibly nasty it was but what was sadder to me was how many people bought it Mm -hmm. and there were so many people who right away were like well, this is terrible. How could CBC fire him just because, you know, these women are trying to destroy him? This, you know, and within this kind of bigger debate, there's always this group of people, a very large group of people, but it was people generally, you could tell who they were. They were people who were usually media connected, usually music scene connected. Um, a lot of women, most from Toronto, but not all. And there was this group of people that were saying, Why don't you hold on? Why don't you hold off that judgment? Why don't you remember you're only hearing his side of the picture? And you could kind of tell pretty early where the dividing line was of people who had heard things about him or seen things about him or who knew stories about him that they couldn't tell and people who hadn't. And then when The Star published, I think you started to see some of that turn. So that was kind of how it unfolded to me was just sort of, this incredibly depressing, like, lifetime example of how we assassinate women's character when it comes to sexual assault allegations, being that they don't even have to have yet had them come public before people are willing, already willing to believe that there is this network of women that is willing to collude to destroy men's reputations. It was disappointing. But I think what's come out of that is hopefully more encouraging. But to be fair, I had no idea how bad it was. I don't, I think a lot of people didn't. And I, you know, I've been saying people, I've been calling him a sexual predator for, since 2005. And I had no idea how bad it was. I had no idea about the violence that was accompanying it. But you always had a sense that someday he's going to he's going to push the wrong button. He's going to, it's going to be an employee. It's going to be a coworker. It's going to be someone who is perhaps uh, too young. It's going to be the wrong person and he is going to get caught. And you're, you, you know, you had been waiting for that for the better part of 10 years. So would it have come out eventually? I, I feel like it had to have, but then again, it didn't for such a long time. It didn't. And we're hearing from people who went to school with him at York, that he was well known to be, not a safe person and this is like
3: 1988 or something
1: this is yeah exactly like 26 years i think people are saying so i mean we're talking longer than some of the many of the women who have come forward this has been going on since before they were born yeah fuck and the the, that's how long it took for them to come out for them to live entire lives and go to college and get jobs in media that's how long it took for that to come out it's it's staggering yeah and i think that's Obviously, that's part of what makes this case so hard to turn away from because it's, it's rare that you get such an incredibly clear example of some of these chronic abuses and, and, and abuse of power structures in culture mm-hmm. and the way they operate because usually it's one or two victims and, and it's maybe a little more hidden. And in this case, it's, it's so textbook, it's painful. And the number of people that were hurt by that is... Mm-hmm.
3: I wanted to ask you about this thing about do you know about Gion because mm-hmm. like because Chris and I were talking about this we didn't know we I had no I had no
0: inclination we're not plugged into the Canadian media I felt, I felt almost uh, I felt kind of naive and kind of offended in a way but, but even, I was gonna say but do you not...
1: hang out in Toronto Gala circles no I but we know yeah. <laughs> like we know
0: even even from the time running the label it's like we were
3: uh. we had to do some level of hobnobbing with Canadian music and media people, Mm -hmm. you know, and I guess, I don't know, it could just be mercifully not enough to ever actually be in a situation where someone's, where there were murmurs going around about this. But I guess I'm not sure whether that phenomenon is interesting or unique or actually just completely commonplace. Like how much in our communities and elsewhere, you know, are there certain people where you might think, like if a woman that you knew started hanging around with somebody, like maybe
0: you might be like, Hey Well every every community has those. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just this one this one is like it's just it's just on a larger scale. Yeah. It's mm-hmm. a marquee event.
3: But it's a scale that maybe just matches the personality, the size of the personality and the scope. And the scope with. the
0: scope of I think we'll get to this in a bit, I think the yeah. the, the betrayal of perceived public trust. Mm-hmm. Right. But can we just go back to your article and talk about your own personal anecdote? Yeah um, in regards to the open secret that we knew nothing about?
1: You know, I kind of don't specify, I'll tell you exactly where it was. It was, uh, it was April, 2005. There was a private party at the Junos were in Winnipeg and there was a, a private party going on at the home of a very wealthy Winnipeg family. Now I did not typically get invited to those types of events. Um, but I had a friend who had, uh, kind of finagled me in, which was pretty exciting. It was my first big kind of industry party. I'd been kind of, you know, slugging it out as a freelance music writer for a while, and um, it was pretty cool. So I'm just standing there in this house on Wellington Crescent, and uh, I I see this guy kind of swan through, and this was back when he was doing play, you know, he yeah. wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't what he became. And I, again, I kind of missed the Moxie for his years. I was a little too young, but silver
3: linings, silver. Linings. Yeah,
1: exactly. But you know, but I knew who he was and, and I kind of see him and he's one of those characters you sort of can't miss, you know, you, you know, sometimes when you see certain stars that are, are, are very self-aware of their own sort of gravity, you know, right. they, they kind of, they kind of float through a, a space.
0: Chris wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> I float through this basement quite a bit.
1: Um, and I just turned to a friend of mine who's uh, kind of been around the Manitoba sort of music industry for a while. And uh, I say, is that Gian Meshi Because I'm thinking, you know, in my head, and i would and be honest, you're thinking this would be a good person to know for a young music writer on the come up, right? Like right. this would be, if not, if just to get his advice or make some connections. And uh, we're just standing against the wall and he goes, yeah, that's him. And he just goes, be careful. I was like, why, you know, he just says, just be careful. And he has this look in his eyes and I've known that look because it's not the first time I've seen it. And it's kind of this look that people have when they know things they, they can't say or they, they don't want to say or maybe don't belong to them. And and he just said, he's, he's weird with women and just be careful. Hmm. And I take warnings like that very seriously. I said, it's not the first time, it wasn't the last time. And warnings like that have never served me wrong. And so I, I kept physical distance and just watched kind of the way he was. And right away, I saw the things that he was doing were, were incredibly unsettling to me. And I, I think I don't know if I had the language for it then that I do now, in terms of the way he treated women, in terms of the way he would walk up and introduce himself to women and you'd see him you'd see the way like very very handsy, you know, we would say, mm-hmm. but you could see the way he would corner women, the way he would cut off their exits, the way he would start touching them in places you would not touch someone you had just met, and kind of push his way into space in a certain way. and it was really uncomfortable for me to watch. So yeah, I kind of put that together pretty quickly. I saw him again. I think there was two other parties elsewhere in Canada that I ended up at, at different music events. And it was always the same story, and it was always very concerning behavior and really unsettling, really creepy behavior. And you start talking to friends of yours, right, to other women you know, and you kind of start passing on the warning that's been passed on to you. And as I wrote in the blog, to me that warning was always, you yeah, know, do you know, you know about Gian? You know about Gian? And it was always, yeah, I know about Gian. Mm. And you didn't have to say anything more than that. And, and that was always kind of the, the, the code. And um, then you start to hear more stories. And I started to hear stories that are not mine to tell, but stories that were quite a bit more disturbing than just creepiness, you know, or just inappropriate touching at a, at a party. And everyone had a friend. Everyone who had a friend who had been alone with him and been hurt by that. That was kind of how I experienced it. And the way I experienced this was that everybody knew. I mean, I realized there's people who didn't, but most women I know knew. A fair number of the guys I've, you know, I've since heard from a lot of pretty well known musicians um, in Canada who direct messaged me on Twitter or emailed me and said I knew. I've been warning friends about, you know, I've known him for 20 years and I've been warning friends about him the entire time. It wasn't a secret. And that's like that was kind of what I wanted to get across a little bit in the blog was that I didn't write that blog to say I had this special information. I didn't. The information I had was not special. It was what everyone knew. And what's, I think, very telling is that for a lot of people kind of maintaining that warning network felt like the only thing we could do to protect ourselves and to protect our friends that it didn't seem like there was any other avenue to to make the community safe from him you didn't think you would be listened to any other way
3: a couple things that that makes me think of one is that the microaggressions like Mm -hmm. some of that stuff that you describe is like what some people might sort of play off as just like Like you say, creepy behavior, Mm -hmm. which I think for some people is easy to dismiss and just say, ah, you're just you're policing the the tiniest actions of a a person. But I think that more often than not, observing those small details of a man's behavior in relation to to other people and not even just women, like it's also certain that sort of narcissistic, power hungry personality type that's just kind of domineering in how they deal with people. It can be a valid warning sign that I think it's too easily dismissed by people, you know, and I think it should be taken more seriously as, as how you can interpret someone's personality and predict their actions because it is, you do see it. It's more uh, than just a
1: For sure. And it's, and I think women are really, women are taught to disregard those instincts and those warning systems ourselves. I think we're always taught to minimize it in ourselves and you kind of see it reflected even in some of the stories that, survivors of his abuse have told media is this idea of, oh, you're probably overreacting. You're probably making a big deal. Oh, you know, you should give him a second chance. It's always this idea of you're blowing this up to be something that it's not. Yeah. And, and I felt that, I, st- I still do it to some extent. You know, with with men I encounter in the world who who behave in ways that make me uncomfortable, it's, it's so hard to overcome that. You know, you can tell a lot from the way men respect your boundaries. And right. when men approach you, you can tell when they approach you in a way that is honest, that is respectful, that is engaging of you as a human being. And you can tell when they approach you in a way that they are looking for that chink in the armor. They are looking for how to get past your boundaries and that was the way Gian behaved toward women it's the way a lot of men I know behave toward women you can tell that they are how do I overcome resistance how do I overcome barriers how do I force myself into that space but we are so often told not to react to that and to accept that and it's so dangerous
0: well that that leads me to a possibly monumentally naive question how prevalent are these kind of open secrets in general? Is this just commonplace for women, not just in media music, but using that as a microcosm of larger society? Is it typical to have open secrets about people in the, in the community?
1: Well, uh, yeah, and I think one of the difficult things about this is how many people are reflecting on who else they know. Because I've never sat down and itemized it. You know, I never made a list of like, well, here's the following people that, you know, until now, until now I'm going over, yeah, how many other times does this happen? And, you know, it's it's often, and it happens so often that it's, it's not, it's almost not notable beyond just acknowledging it as a threat. I can say there's someone in the media community now who did something quite horrible to me, and I find him very very dangerous I haven't said anything about it to anyone except for a few of his co-workers telling them you know, keep women safe from this guy because he's not safe there was someone back in the, the old Winnipeg punk scene who some of us would know who I know for a fact routinely coerced very young girls into sexual acts like 14 15 were going to punk shows I never said anything about that um, but everybody knew about him It's, you know, you start going through these lists and realizing this happens all the time. And there has to be a better way to keep communities safe, to defend communities from this kind of behavior. Because it seems like right now, the only thing that happens is it continues unabated. People warn each other quietly to do what they can without putting themselves in a position of risk. Because... Who is usually the person who pays the greatest when they go public? It's usually the survivor. It's usually the victim. Unless there are really, really compelling evidence of physical injury that's hard to deny. Or else, unless there's just a sufficient volume of allegations, which is, I think, the only difference right now between the public perception of Xion and the public perception of, say, certain NCAA football players who have been, you know, it's just that the, instead of one, it's 11 and growing mm. and a million other people saying, yeah, he was a total creep egg. If that hadn't happened, I think we'd have a very different reaction now. Yeah. So to me, it's sort of like, so the next step of the conversation is, okay, we've realized how bad this gets. We're having a chance right now to kind of put out in the open how bad this gets. What are we going to do about it? And what are we going to do about it in a way that doesn't require policing literal policing
3: yeah because that's the after i read your piece i thought well fuck like what it's not enough you know and obviously it, it wasn't enough you know there needs to be some other mechanism because you're telling as many people as you know and that you can or who you think might encounter this person you know it's like be on the lookout don't get involved this guy's got a history but what's the
0: I don't know. Well, it would require a paradigm shift because I think most people in Canada, especially men, the sensible recourse is the quote-unquote justice system. It's a system made by men, Mm. uh, so men believe in it. But women, clearly, in the the wake of, of this, the women are scoffing at the idea that any of the survivors would have gone to the police or bothered with pressing charges.
1: It's incredible to me how many times I've had to explain to men... And almost only ever to men. Why victims don't go to police? Because it's every time there's a story about sexual assault. Why no police charges? Why you know? And I've said if 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 I was flat out raped tomorrow, I wouldn't go to police. Not if I knew the person. If it was a stranger who jumped out of a, an, a you know an alley yeah, but that's so rare. and I don't think I don't think a lot of men realize that either, is that stranger rape accounts for the the smallest percentage of sexual assault and abuse cases. It's almost always someone you know. And the issue of sexual assault and justice is tricky. um and i I'm a feminist. I am uh, strongly um, interested in sexual assault advocacy and and working around this. I'm not insensitive to the fact that our justice system requires a certain evidentiary standard. And the reason that it does that is because we need to demand that evidentiary standard in order to give the state the power to curtail freedoms. That that's the counterbalance, is that if the state can take away your liberties, it has to prove that you did it. Now, this is a flawed system. Innocent people go to prison all the time. There's terrible problems with racial bias, with ethnic bias, with class bias and sentencing and, 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 and in conviction rates, But it is a standard I believe in. And that also means accepting that through the criminal system, many guilty people will not be able to be convicted because that can't be met. I believe in that. The problem is that fundamentally, sexual assault, sexual abuse, very, very rarely leaves evidence that comes anywhere near that standard, and if you know the person, which is the case in the majority of sexual assaults, virtually all evidence is. It would also be found in the event of a consensual encounter, um, and also because relationships are messy. Because women who have been assaulted often continue to keep contacting, you know, their rapist, who may be a partner or an ex partner, and all of that context will be used against them. It will be used against their case. Mm. And so what I kind of say to to guys who bring this whole thing, well, no, the justice system will sort it out innocent until proven guilty is if that's all you're going to put your kind of all your stock into, that simply means that the vast majority of sexual assaults will never, ever receive any kind of justice because you can't meet an evidentiary standard. The evidence does exist, is not necessarily always conclusive. And then on top of that, you add into it that, well, there's a lot of great police, great investigators, great judges, great lawyers, who are well educated about sexual assault. There's just as many of them who reflect the attitudes of general society, who are, who will blame victims, who will say like, are you, you know, are you sure you're not just you know, you're not just angry about what's happened. Are you sure you want to do this? You know, we did find this text from you saying that, you know, you missed him. And so there's so much stacked against in that system. So this comes back to, like, I'm sorry, I'm on to rant now. No, no. But, like, we need to find a better way to kind of have restorative channels within communities and within organizations. Because the other telling thing is that with what the NFL has been going through with domestic assault, There was a really great article that talked to a number of survivors of domestic abuse from NFL players, and one of them said, you know, we don't go to police because we don't want to be the ones blamed for ending our husband's careers, for ending our partner's careers, because we're going to get torn apart in public, and, you know, our husband is this huge star, and he's this huge success, and he's, you know, his small town is proud of him, his, you know, neighborhood that he came from is proud of him, and it'll be our fault. If we go to please, so there has to be some kind of mechanism that gives the power to survivors to be able to go to an organization, to go to a community, to go to a person and say, I have been injured. This is what I want. You know, because what survivors often want is not for the person to go to jail or it's not for it to be all over the media or in the headlines. Sometimes it is just they want to know that this person's not going to do it again. Sometimes it is an apology. Sometimes it is an awareness. It can be a million different things. Sometimes it's simply this person shouldn't be working for your organization because he isn't safe. What if, I mean, imagine if there had been some kind of mechanism or, or pipeline for people to get together and go to the CBC and say, this employee that you have is not a safe person. This is someone who has been hurting people. And this is someone who has been very threatening to the safety of women in our neighborhoods. And what if that had been listened to? But there's no such avenue. And there's no, our, our culture doesn't bear that kind of way of addressing injury between us. And I think that's that's a lack, right? We've become so invested in... The state having a monopoly on justice and on punishment, or you know, some kind of retributive action, that we've sort of lost this ability to. How do we navigate this within communities? And so that's kind of what I'd like to see come out of this. Yeah, y-
3: yeah I mean, yes, yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, I don't even think there's there's anything inherent in the state that prevents the state from having a role in facilitating that Mm -hmm. you know and i think like maybe some of the stuff that has been happening with restorative justice programs in first nations communities shows some sort of path down this road but even if you look beyond sexual assault if you look at the Mm -hmm. not to get on too much of a tangent but if you look at most crimes say in in canada you would think that most of them well most of them probably shouldn't be crimes in the first place but of the remaining ones most of them are far better dealt with in the manner of restorative justice in, in, you know, having these conversations and talking to the victims about what they want. Cause that's the other thing, even now with say police investigating some of these charges against Giangameshi, even if charges were to come to fruition and somehow it would make it through the justice system. And somehow he gets prison time or whatever. It's like, well, what, then what, where's the solution? He's the same fucking guy. And, uh, you know, depending on your, your perspective, the justice system, generally speaking, isn't worth a fucking goddamn... Anyway, because it doesn't rehabilitate people. He doesn't fix any problems. It just warehouses people who have done bad things. Well, yeah. and there's
1: always going to be another John. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, this case may be unusually bad, at least in terms of what's been made public. But you know, we can punish him. And, and honestly, I think like he's never going to work in this country again. I mean, and that's probably the greatest punishment for him, to be honest. But there's always going to be another one if you if you deal with every case like this as um and don't learn anything from it and don't um treat it as this isolated event right yeah. there's always going to be another one like yeah. there are right now yeah you know we just don't know about them yet maybe we never will
3: uh, i'll we'll put a link in the show notes but there was this website that popped up the other day uh i didn't report because fuck you that was did the you best blog that's it been my
1: favorite <laughs> blog of this entire did you read interview? that no, i didn't
3: see it what is it's so act? funny it's basically just someone saying i didn't report because fuck you it's like I She's have time like, for I've this got shit.
1: kids i have a job i'm a single mom i have to worry about getting food on the table and taking the dog to the vet i yeah. didn't report because fuck you Why should i have to change yeah. my life around mm-hmm. well this loser gets to yeah know, wander around and <laughs> yeah
3: it's so perfect, because just reading. I mean, you can't help, you can't help but just read it and just think, just for a second, put yourself in someone else's shoes and think, fuck yeah, I can, I can barely fucking go to the walk-in clinic if I'm sick, you know? And then it's like, the, like you had mentioned, Melissa, one of the things you wrote that stood out to me in your, uh, in your piece was just saying, something like the demands we put on survivors of sexual assault are enormous. You are the victim... Of, of something and then what
0: we expect you to then do it's just it's remarkable
1: the hoops that you have to jump through are yeah,
0: yeah. it's disturbing mm-hmm. let's let's go back to talking about what you mentioned about people hiding behind hmm. certain personas you, you talked about people hiding behind a feminist persona yeah. men hiding behind a feminist persona yeah
1: um, or anarchist or, or i mean I, you've seen this i'm sure right
0: i believe i have yeah. i believe so time and time again I think. <laughs> yes, See yeah, know, right
1: now. You're looking, uh, yeah. you're looking at
0: it. <laughs> Let's talk about that. Yeah. The terrifying thing about it is, and I made a tweet to this effect the other day, that I would rather leave my family with Rob Ford than Gian Gameshi. And that occurred to me just because I was like, well, f- fuck Rob Ford. You see him coming a mile away. I was going to say,
1: you know what you get with Rob Ford. You know what Ford. you get. He'll you, tell but, you what he get, you know, afterward. Yeah.
0: And <laughs> but you know, Yeah. And now you don't know what to think about... It almost You don't know what to think about fucking anybody because he was such a poster boy for this uh, Canadian liberal to some degree. Yeah, like it
3: takes... I guess that's a question. Like, does it take a certain kind of person... Like, if you're going to end up as the host of Q and you have your fucking face plastered everywhere, does it take a certain kind of person in order to attain that status? Or does a certain kind of person intentionally attain that That's, status yeah because yeah, what better job for gian gameshi in order to, to provide access to provide a
0: veneer mm-hmm. of yeah being this great great guy
1: i tend to be and there's this is not to say everyone who does this is bad and i'm sure most of them aren't i tend to be skeptical of anyone who seeks power of any kind whether that be fame or influence or and and that includes cultural power um,
3: like podcast hosts, for example,
1: like dangerous you know territory and and part of that is because the level of pressure that you 're under when you 're in a situation like that is so intense that some people deal with it well enough to navigate and you know, but but people who crave it i don 't know it it means they process things in in a different way, and a lot i mean how often is it kind of proven right? you know mm-hmm. how often do some of these people turn out to be? super abusive even if they're not literal predators like you know they'll eventually they'll die and some of a TV show host and then it turns out they're you know they're actually like a horrible jerk and right. yeah. you know and, and they're awful to their employees and treating people like garbage and took credit for other people's work I mean I mean John was a construction, right? Like the public mm-hmm. character. I mean that's what like his producers wrote his essays, which is normal, but his producers write his essays, his producers write his scripts, like give him the the ideas, the guests, all that, but then he's the one who stands up there and is like, "Oh, but I'm John Gameshi. I mean to me, yeah, a healthy skepticism of that kind of person and what why they want that platform is useful.
0: Yeah, it also makes people like us feel better for you know, <laughs> Fucking being failures. Oh well. Um, what was the? Other? Oh, oh, let's yeah. go back. Let's go back to okay. uh, the using. Did we just go over it really? Or no? no I because I, I think derailed. that's. I
1: think the whole other thing is that because one thing that's so often in left communities, feminist communities, you know, progressive communities is they kind of act like sexism, misogyny, misogynistic abuse. That's something that the right does. You know, they're the ones you know, mobilizing to shut down abortion clinics, and we're the ones who love women because I'm a male feminist. Well, I mean, they don't get the press of Gian but how many cases have of high-profile male feminists in just in the last year have been sort of excommunicated from online feminism because they were found to be abusive, to be manipulating their position for at the very least sexual coercion of women right. um th- this is so common you know it's, it's certainly common in activist scenes you know how, how many activist scenes have had to deal with some really problematic dude you know who's mm-hmm. there for sort of the wrong reasons uh, again going back to i remember this guy I knew back in the old punk days around here who was utilizing his connection to to bands and to certain activist communities. And he would give these big soliloquies about how progressive he was, you know. And, and, of course, you know, he's vegan, radical, feminist, you know. But then you see the way that he's using that to lure in young girls.
0: Yeah, anecdotally, there's, I mean, there's stuff going on right now in Winnipeg that is, it's, I mean, it's not really synchronicity with the Xi'an thing because it just shows. It is, it's everywhere all the time. But especially with, when I think about punk scenes or grandcore scenes, where these things might be happening, or activist scenes, those scenes sometimes tend to attract people who are misfits mm-hmm. and might be a little more vulnerable and i I now believe people predators seek out those kind of scenes mm-hmm. because people they are less protected you know there's less there's less of a support system. people are more willing to let shit pass or to i don't know what it I don't know what's going on, but uh, but I think the other way to look at that is that. It shows the fundamental fallacy of
3: people thinking that their politics defines who they are when it doesn't. You are who you are and you have politics, but nothing about your politics precludes you from doing anything or being any kind of person. And Um, And
1: it's very easy to say, you know, I'm a feminist or... It's very easy to say that. And it's very easy to learn how to say the right things. John hosted a segment on rape culture. Remember this? Yeah. You can learn the buzzwords. You can learn the things to say. You can read the right books and quote the right authors. But if you're not acting it, you know.
3: You don't just have to read them and say them. You can believe them. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not... You can be f- fully in and know everything there is to know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't change. If you don't do the work, you know, if, if in your in your actions doesn't change who you are and i think like it applies to so much shit that we always talk about even if if you're talking about people thinking you know because because you're an atheist or you know an atheist couldn't ever be unduly influenced by tribalism or whatever you know it's all that's all has to do with only religion and like it crosses all boundaries it's like a fundamental problem that we have with our own cognition about ourselves
1: yeah i mean you bring up atheists I and mean, frankly, movement atheism is one of the most difficult places for women in, the, in this yeah. society. It's in some ways, I would say a lot of religious spaces are far more healthier for women than, uh, you know, the Richard Dawkins fan club, you know, which yeah. is one of the, the nastiest, most openly misogynistic <laughs> conversations that you see online. But of course, you know, I was like, but I'm not misogynistic because I'm, you know, I'm rational. But it's it doesn't change the inability to or the unwillingness to even attempt to see the world from someone else's eyes, right? It's you know, as soon as you believe that your your politics or your avowed statement of beliefs is objective or, or trump's all other experience, you know, you're screwed.
3: One thing I keep coming back to when thinking about this and when talking about this is like the the, the jumping off point here is talking about Jiongameshi, right? But Jiongameshi mm-hmm. isn't really important. Ultimately, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the prevalence of sexual assault. Uh, we're talking about how we have the conversation around sexual assault, how we find justice for the victims of sexual assault, and possibly also how we rehabilitate and reintegrate abusers into society. But there was a piece just today in the Globe and Mail by uh, Denise Balkasun, basically s- saying this whole, I'm calling bullshit on this whole idea that somehow this Jeanne affair is this watershed moment for understanding violence against woman and on tackling the issue of violence against women in this country you know basically making the argument that why this? you know Robert Picton wasn't enough you know a missing and murdered Aboriginal woman. not enough. you know now everybody's standing up and saying, this, this has crossed the line. Now we're gonna really get down to business and we're gonna fix this problem. And she's basically saying, you know what I've heard this before. And it's bullshit. I don't believe you. It's a valid question. Like, what is it? Is there something that makes this different? Why is the conversation different this time? And is it?
1: Yeah, I would say, I guess part of it for me, and I think this goes back to something we were talking about earlier. To me, it feels so... I really hate to use the word useful. Because in order for it to be useful, so many people had to get hurt or (laughs) were hurt. And it just seems gross. But I can't think of a better word. The more that comes out, it's becoming a very useful example to show how very, very harmful behaviors persist in and are enabled by safe, for lack of a better word, organizations or mainstream organizations. There is horrific violence against women. We've known that for a long time. We've had the Pictons, we've had the Bernardos. Is there different ways to respond or protect ourselves and, and women and society from people like that? Yeah. But they aren't enabled by they aren't they aren't rendered invisible within organizations when their abuse is known in the same way. Do you know what I mean? It's you're always going to have psychopaths to a certain extent. You're not always going to have a guy who is able to abuse employees with impunity under the guise of the Mother Corp with It's hard not to believe some awareness from some of his superiors, many of his coworkers, and almost everybody in his social community with no power to do anything about it. And that's what I think is different about it is because the weight of the allegations, the number of allegations is so massive that it's very, very difficult to discredit them entirely. As you get with some of these smaller cases where Mm -hmm. only one or two people come forward. And so it allows us to look at this as a whole and say, like, this is exactly how rape culture operates. This is exactly how violence and abuse against women is excused and normalized within a workplace, within a community, within a cultural scene. And we can see it in the way the CBC reacted. And, you know, frankly, kind of, if we listen to the story of one employee who came forward, covered for him and said, you know, to this employee who came forward and said, he's been groping my ass and abusing me. And they said what can you do to make this a less toxic workplace for yourself, right? That was what she says that she was told. Is it a watershed? I don't know if it will be, but I do think it lays so naked all of the things that we've been trying to pull together to make people see for so long. And in that way, I think it is different to me.
3: Yeah, because it's easier to see a Robert Picton and just say... Crazy. Crazy psychopath. Mm -hmm. And, you know, missing and murdered women, people can just... They just put a big question mark on it. Mm -hmm. You know, you can just say, oh, I don't know. That's just one of the big mysteries. But this is like someone that people feel they know. Mm -hmm. You know, even if in a completely false manner. Yeah. But, you know, and you have all these voices, separate voices coming up. People who are here and it's like it's just everything... Yeah, I guess maybe it feels more laid bare.
1: Well, because I think like with Missing and Murdered Women, until people have that paradigm shift in terms of how they see the effect of colonialism in Canada, it's very hard to make that connection because you're you're talking about... They see it as you're talking about something that happened a long time ago and is, is um, sort of contained within that time. They don't see it as processes. Right. And they have a very hard time connecting it to uh, an epi- like a, a single episode of violence or, a, or even a pattern. Those are hard links for them to make because they don't yet see the world that way. But in this case, you know, it's just we can say like his student council community at York University knew he was abusive. Nothing happened. His friends in the music community knew he was abusive. Nothing happened. CBC had clearly had some kind of contact with at least one employee saying he was abusive. Nothing happened. Students at uh, University of Western Ontario said that they were told not to take internships there because he was abusive, nothing happened. So we can go down these things and say like, well, like where does the buck stop, right? Like who at what point in this chain who had power in some way to at the very least slow him down, call him out you know limit the scope of this did nothing and did nothing and how did this protect him until he got to one of the most important positions in his field in this entire nation and so that to me is what it's it's step by step like we can start in 1988 and we can work our way up every mm-hmm. year mm-hmm. and i'm sure eventually we will i'm sure in a year someone's going to come out with some very expertly researched long form article that is going to walk us through yeah every step of this chain but it's you can't not see the connection between how this was enabled and the organizations that he existed in. Hmm. This is the only thing I... Sorry. No, no. Add. This is the only thing I'd throw out. I am prepared to believe that Gian really believes he didn't do anything wrong. I am prepared to believe that he feels that all of his interactions with women were consensual or at the very least natural and that this is seduction and that this is the way that it's acceptable and normal for men to treat women
0: well that's if, generous but if you i, I, reading, I don't, but reading I don't, the accounts,
3: don't doesn't because that, that's what i thought that too reading the accounts like specifically the quotes about how he would respond to women afterwards yep. you know where he's like
1: how's it going yeah and, and then great time last and night and saying like oh i'm trying to but isn't i that need just, to
3: figure out whether we're
0: sexually compatible isn't that just a cover
1: know uh, I don't think it is. And and I'll tell you why. Because I think so many men have such a poor understanding of consent. And our, our culture does not teach it. But And our culture teaches that this kind of predatory behavior is what women want. And I think certain guys internalize that.
0: But that's a chasm between his persona on CBC, as you talked about him having a, a special on rape culture. Between that and the events described in the piece. Like how can you... How can that be possible unless unless he something is biochemically wrong in his brain?
1: No, I don't think because I'll tell you what, I think a lot of people who push those boundaries think it's okay. I mean, you go to some of these places on the Internet, right, where they talk about like pickup artist sites and red pill sites where they talk about how to kind of hit on women. And the discussion is always how to get past the barriers. And they have these very long theories that they've put together about female behavior, but they essentially come down to, oh, women only throw up barriers. They call it an anti-slut defense. And it's like, oh, women only throw up barriers because they need to feel like you don't think they're a slut. So it's your job to overcome those barriers. And this is like very serious, like that they think that this is healthy, normal reactions and that... Like, especially if is into kind of power play and stuff like that, but hasn't done the actual work to to be part of a kink community. You know, he's probably immersed himself in probably from a very young age in certain kinds of pornography that fetishize very gray areas of consent and and that fetishize sort of this, oh, she's going to love it if you throw against the wall and if you smack her. And if you, you know what I mean? (laughs) So many dudes are so invested in that. But the, the story, I don't think it is a cover, and I'm saying that honestly. Like, when I was seven, eighteen, 18, I very briefly, for like a week, dated a friend of ours who was a cousin of one of my old childhood friends. You know, I was very naive, kind of very inexperienced. Long story short, he kind of forced himself over to my house. I was like, fine. It, anyway, it kind of ends up with him holding me down by the throat and attacking me. And, you know, I managed to push him off. It could have been a lot worse than it was, but it was a pretty eye-opening moment for me. And the next day he shows up at my workplace with a bouquet of flowers and I like ran to the back and all the coworkers, all these old ladies and they're like oh there's like a nice young man out there with flowers for you and I'm like please make him go away and they couldn't figure out why so I finally went out and when I was to him he's just like you know I just want to say last night was the was the most beautiful night I'm so glad that you're with me and I was like okay actually no I are not anymore and he took that horribly and made a huge scene and but but the reason i'm saying this is because that response the next day like man this was such a great night they believe it the, the bigger problem is really not predatory dudes who walk around being like oh i'm gonna get these ladies you know i'm gonna hurt them the bigger like i which exists and it's usually horrifying when it happens the bigger problem is guys who honestly don't believe they've done anything wrong and keep doing it over and over and over and who believe that this is what sexuality is and that this is what consent is and that this is what relationships look like because they've been taught that and because no one has ever told them it didn't. Because at some point they went to a buddy and were like, oh man, will not believe what I got up to this chick last night and tell a story that is like really questionable in terms of the consent and the guy didn't say anything. I think that the issue is that we still do such a shitty job at modeling for, especially teens at a certain age, kind of like what this is supposed to look like.
3: What is, if we were to idealize like our what we would like to see come out of this, out of all this fucking abject shittiness, what can we hope for? What now? What good can happen now? You're asking me? Melissa? <laughs>
1: I well I'd kind of <laughs> like to go back to I just hope we kind of carry forward this idea. I'm I'm really jazzed up about talking about, you know, how do we build in sort of extra legal respectful um safe and 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 survivor friendly, you know, mechanisms to help survivors come forward and to deal with that. On as quiet or as loud a level as that survivor wants, um, some of that idea of res- you know developing restorative justice angles—that's something that I would really like to see because I think that would have helped in this case. I think it would have helped people been able to come forward a long time ago when they had less to say.
0: Is is that conversation actually happening somewhere?
1: Um, I know a lot of great, like say it's it's happening all the time, saying prison abolition discussion in th- this very narrow context. I haven't seen it, which means maybe i'll have to write something else and then hide under a pile of coats again because that was like more of a week that i really want to go through again but uh maybe it'll have to be me
0: yeah it seems like something that should be said like a little spark for people to put in their brain. other than that fucking get a better hiring process at cbc (laughs) oh no yeah Melissa, thank you for straightening us out, sobering us up.
1: Uh Uh, Anytime.
0: Yeah, we appreciate it. Uh, Thank you. So that was our discussion with Melissa Martin. Some good food for thought there. A lot of food for thought for guys like us.
2: So we referenced a lot of articles in that discussion. We're going to have a bunch of links in the show notes for this episode. So you can read through the timeline and uh, look at some of the reporting and look at some of the analysis and might give you a full perspective on this whole fucking debacle. Yeah. If you care.
0: All right, off we go. G-7 G- seven seven radio. radio. Mining bright rye. Poke out Derek's eyes. Kick em in the bag. With a 12-gauge boot. What's a 12-gauge boot? Derek, here we are again for another installment of... Yeah! ...G7 Radio. Excited for this one. Where we go back in time and yep. review the back catalog of the record label that you and I and others ran into the ground. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So, so this is sort of like an uh, autopsy. An autopsy of the recordings yeah. we made so this month we have i think what is going to be a titillating release for our listenership people have probably been waiting for this one already i can't wait to find out the origin story well this one is g7003 the third record we put out officially under the g7 umbrella the weaker than's fallow no it's fallow fallow yes the debut this was the debut release I mean we put out the fucking first weaker dance record what do I you know. think of that world yeah then look at us now look at us now sitting in my basement I think the the real story is when John was still in Propaganda right you know we were all doing other stuff me and Todd were the last man on earth doing stupid stuff you know side project stuff it was mm. big time for side projects and jamming with other bands right I think I jammed even with silent Equals once or twice I think you did it, that was what was going on and samson used to jam would jam with steve carroll and maybe it was paul fergill and i think they were calling it the weaker thans really i think i have that memory interesting And the, the, the name was taken from uh what was that fucking movie i watched it with samson and there was a a scene in it where the guy gets called weak or something in a potential bar fight and the guy says you have no idea how weak i am and uh oh it hits well i think at the time i think we all went whoa yeah and then i think that stuck with john and Mm -hmm. he called the band the weaker thans i'm pretty sure that's where it came from so then when i guess in in tandem with all that happening at the time john was still in propaganda we were trying to make new songs right for a record down the road and they were songs that eventually appeared on this weaker thans record there's two for sure and maybe three. Really? Well, there's four because he actually does anchor which right. was on Let's Talk More Rock, but there's three other ones. So this is, you were working on what would become today's Empire of Tomorrow's Ashes at the time. Yeah, no, no, we weren't quite, no. no. Uh,
3: None of those songs were in progress yet.
0: Well, yeah. Back to the Motor League was... Because was there not a schism in songwriting as John was jamming well, this is, this and, f- and
3: working on these more indie rock poppy-ish songs and you guys were writing in a direction that was getting a little more hardcore slash thrash
0: yeah i th- at the at the time we thought that was the attraction that john came with these songs that that weren't heavy that mm-hmm. weren't fast and then jordan and i you know we were like okay well let's let's fucking jazz these up the way we know how to play fucking music the way yeah. we like it and you know on less talk more rock i thought it worked really well mm-hmm. the couple of gifts and anchorless they're kind of rocking for songs that weren't originally that were way more skippy and poppy i think and i think we thought we were going to do that again the songs that i remember we were jamming on south osborne in this old record store beside the bus stop with no soundproofing so people would just and and there was no window people would just stick their head in and watch us jamming (laughs) it was ridiculous (gasps) that's funny the songs i remember us trying to Right with John at that time one of them was Confessions of a Futon Revolutionist Yep, which I think is the yes, third a little, song a little more of a, a power pop song yeah and the other one was Leash oh really
3: yeah interesting because that's an interest that's the most interesting song on Fallow
1: I think had one of those days when you wanna try
2: heroin drunk driving some form of soft suicide.
1: I'm singing
0: was the song where i think jordan and i realized we have no place in this anymore it's not working what right we're, what we're trying to do i'm I, somewhere i probably have recordings of us trying to do these songs we, like we'd finish playing it whatever section we worked on and then we'd all just stand there like kind of confused because <laughs> you know that song's like just didn't work it was just the, seems, the, didn't
3: have the necessary
0: dynamic we didn't have the nuance yeah yeah, it wasn't it wasn't working, and that I think we thought, the time has come, for us, to all make a decision. Right, and so I think there was it wasn't like he was had to start from scratch. Right, he was kind of already jamming with people, and had songs, mm-hmm. and we were starting the label and said, we'll put it out. There's a way of not totally abandoning each other. Right, we thought. Yeah, but, <laughs> but little did we know that being in that kind of relationship isn't necessarily the funnest no. either
3: no it's not the greatest way to Label, uh, versus stay tight yeah. yeah
0: I think the other maybe that the second song Diagnosis maybe we had jammed that in yeah, Propaganda I can see
3: another upbeat yeah. among, among the kind of
0: faster paced songs on the record oh and Letter of Resignation wasn't that that might have been one too that we tried to jam I can't remember we did a, there was a 7 inch that attributed to Propaganda but it's just John playing that song oh really yeah. oh yeah yeah that's FYP. Say, it's like An a FYP split. split that's yeah. right
3: uh it's like a picture of felicia mickey holding a gun on the that's cover right or something
0: that's right yeah. but st- i mean stuff happens so fast then yeah that the this record just yeah you, you know get, you get
3: like a letter from someone and they're like hey we want to do a split seven inch and then you just respond with like a dat tape
0: yeah it's like there you go put it out yes yeah, so, and essentially you know we we said john it's time to we're gonna look for somebody else right hey we're also starting a label <laughs> Oh, and John's like, oh, well, I have this band. Yeah. <laughs> like everything's already <laughs> underway because funny. you never had to prepare for anything. You just did it. Yeah. And uh, we ended up putting out uh, some Weaker Than's records. So, so they got together and, and recorded this they uh, recorded at this at Private Ear Studios. The old Private Ear Studios, which yep. was an excellent sounding room. Yep. Not that the new one isn't, but the old one certainly was warm and woody. hmm And they recorded this with Neil, uh, Neil Cameron. And, uh, I remember actually when they gave us the first mixes, oh, you weren't there for that. No. I went, I went to the studio and listened with them and I was really disappointed because to me it sounded like a four track recording. Really? And that's when we got Darren Barry involved. Although I'm sure in retrospect now I probably would have just been like, cool, Neil's mix sounds very good and real. You know, it's, it's what happened. Right. But at the time, you know, I wanted something that was more, I was thinking. Polished? Or more, no, no, Just more in your face. Right, I, st- I think I still couldn't let go of the idea that stuff should be in your face. Wasn't Darren Barry more like a metal? Yeah. From the metal world? Yeah. But I thought he did a good job. Like yeah. uh, it sounds, he didn't totally cheese it up. It w- it's not like it was a high budget record. No, it's very, it's quickly made and it's just very good playing on it.
3: Yeah. So this, because I, I listened to this record a lot when it came out. Yeah. But it's funny listening to it now just seeing how how young the band oh, yeah. was, yeah. you know, it, in terms of even like his singing, like in how confident he is. I, I did some comparison this record to the last Weaker Dance record, you know, released right. like five or six or more years ago now, but very different person singing those songs. And eventually, you know, perhaps I, I personally grew a little weary of some of the affect of... Some of the lyrics, which I think John just became a much better writer yes. as time went on, you know. But the, the kind of like coffee diner basement apartment right
0: shtick, which, but it it almost it's they it's, almost were the kind of the first to do it. Yeah, I was, was wondering more, was about that. that. Everybody else started doing it. Yeah, and it would then it was just like throw your head back. Oh God, kill me! I don't want to hear another fucking college rock. Fucking yeah, horseshit record. Yeah, it's not like they. It's not like they were emulating
3: a a current trend in no, or even kind of post punk trend, or like, whatever.
0: Like it wasn't like the repl- replacements or the Pixies or yeah, or lowest of the low. Yeah, you know, it was it was its own thing. Yeah, it was in it was Winnipeg indie rock. It was really the the beginning of Winnipeg indie rock yeah. being taken seriously.
3: This album, this launched them into wide renown yeah this was a quickly very popular album not just in winnipeg or canada but even into the u.s yeah you know it got them a distribution deal with a u.s label and they started touring down there and i think you can like it is a landmark record in a way yeah like it certainly was it was for the label yeah i guess in a way for putting that kind of post-punk indie rock style on the map yeah you know for winnipeg or even for Canada broadly. It, they're such a well-known... All the time I talk to people, Weaker dance are... Yeah, aside from propaganda, Yeah,
0: we, usually it's like, you know propaganda. No? Okay, what about the Weaker dance? <laughs> like you were saying, I think this record's just a little too... It has some really good moments and I can really look back on it and go, wow, this guy knew how to fucking put a song together. Mm-hmm. But just this record particularly just a little too skippy and sappy in parts. And I'll bet you John just thinks of it now. Well, probably not the way he thinks of how to clean everything. But he (laughs) thinks of it, you know, probably like, ah. Yeah. ah, I'm not as interested in that as I am in their later records, obviously. Right, yes. But I thought the next record, which we'll talk about in a few episodes, was was, was where they really got interesting.
3: I think we also have to give this record credit for, because as we've, already discussed in the previous two installments the first two records to come out on g7 weren't exactly fucking barn burners when it came to retail sales yeah or notoriety yeah so uh, we also have to credit this record with being the first commercially successful and critically acclaimed release yeah that g7 put out and kind of helped get the wheels in motion a little bit
0: Yep, for sure Kudos to them. Thanks, guys. Really appreciate it. The Weekend Ends weren't the funnest band to deal with uh, from a label perspective, were they? Because they were a serious band. Because they were (laughs) a serious band who took their business
3: seriously. Yeah. Which was the only band on the label who did that. Yeah. So I think
0: that that rubbed us. It rubbed us the wrong way because we didn't run things. uh, Uh, Because we didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know what we were doing, but we also the. I, I don't know if we've talked about this, but the philosophy the label was fuck Fuck the bands bands. that's right we were the we were the show (laughs) to to us and the bands were just the thing to keep the show rolling so when a band came and asked about what's going on with this or what's when do we get this and you know we were like what you fucking dare to call us and ask us a question (laughs) fuck you man yeah which is which is probably why eventually when what was the what was the record that we decided not to put out of theirs, reconstruction site. Fucking, we decided not to put out a weaker than's record. Yeah, when John was saying we'd like you to put this out, we're In gonna Canada put it out, anyway. Yeah, we're gonna put it out on Epitaph, but we want to keep you guys. And we said no. We just said no because yeah. we didn't. Well, I think we that's didn't insane.
3: Wanna, we didn't want to do the work. We didn't want to uh, have to be accountable. I would guess for the work. I mean, that's not that's not really the only story. Especially by that point, I think we were a little better. We had grown into. Some of us had grown into trying to be a rusted, creaky, but functioning machine.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we were just lazy. (laughs) We were lazy and maybe not thinking straight, because that would have helped us Mm -hmm. to put the record out. Yeah. Probably, is it probably their most popular record? Yeah, it might be. (laughs) Nice one. It was a new era for Samson. It was a new era for g7 because they put out a good record
3: in some ways the beginning it's like without that record where's the launching off point
0: yeah i don't even know how we fucking put it out like you weren't at the label i don't know who regal organ regal are you kidding jord i, I think don't know maybe jord how no must have been jord no what do you how come it couldn't be me <laughs> because you- i was the guy who did everything back then did you know that i didn't i was okay I was the guy who fucking I wasn't No, You know what I was not passing judgment I was just Because of you Of course were, it couldn't be me Because you were the one Riggle? saying George Because you were the one saying I don't know how we did it I thought well I." But I, I don't assume. know how we did it I don't I don't remember doing anything <laughs> yeah, I don't wreck. remember doing anything for it I don't remember If I got a box of CDs now Like a stack of CDs I'd just sit there and look at them <laughs> Thinking What the fuck you do with this <laughs> Even if it was our own record I'd just be like I don't know what to do I don't know. Do I call? Who do I call? What do I do? You sell yourself too short, No, sir. I'm not even kidding. I don't even... I have no clue how we let people know that it was out. It's weird to think about how long ago that was. Because yeah. Because it's almost 20 years ago. Yeah. It, yeah. It's, it came out only four years after had to Clean Everything. That's weird. Fucked. Things happened so fast back then.
3: I know. It's just... Is it, is,
0: was it the time or is it just youth... It's youth. We were just doing stuff. Everyone just did stuff. But keep that in mind, listeners. Life is short. Yeah. And you're gonna die soon. Anyways, all right, I spy. Perversity is spreading. Next month. G7004. Goodbye. Her hands touch. Childhood home in photos that
1: she took. It's one more mission from a high school history.
0: Yes, so thanks for tuning in for episode 26 of Escape Velocity Radio. If you want to read the show notes or join the discussion, the national discussion, or listen to our archives, visit our national website at EscapeVelocityRadio.com.
2: If you like the show and you want to support us, please leave a review on iTunes, or you can also make a donation via the donate link on our website. You can also
0: follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or SoundCloud by searching for Escape Velocity Radio. Or you can send us feedback via email at feedback at escapevelocityradio.com
2: Hey, next month is Christmas.
0: Merry Christmas.
1: we just words to kill off One more unheard statement Of another dying afternoon She says she's leaving soon So long Ten hour shifts
3: in faith